growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Hey everyone, you're back on the cheat code. Of course, I'm Justin, joined as always by my friend, Mr. Uh, Josh Wagner over there. What's up, Josh? What's up, everybody? Joined from the home gym. Uh, So super excited to have our latest guest with us. Uh, I don't even know when I met Lauren, but it's been, I feel like, well over a decade. Uh, She is currently a practice lead over at Winning by Design. She's a co-founder and board member over at Women in Revenue and just a general badass. Uh, so welcome Lauren Goldstein to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Um, I think it's definitely well over a decade and I always love to uh, have a little interaction, whether podcast or face-to-face. So thanks for having me. For sure. We appreciate you doing it. So, you know, as you know, our, our overall topic here is, is cheat codes and cheats. And some people view those as, you know, cheating as, as, as a negative. I certainly don't, you know, everyone's got to have something that they can lean on in order to, you know, do things just a little bit better, a little bit faster, you know, most of the time um, than what everyone else is trying to do. Right. And and when we first started talking about your topic, um, it just, you know, clicked for me a thousand percent as we're kind of talking even before the show, it's uh, something I'm trying to write a a post on right now. And as we work with our different port codes, it's so difficult to, kind of package up and and distill down what that quality is that separates one organization from another in terms of pace and in terms of, you know, just overall drive within the organization. And so I won't steal the thunder in terms of announcing this, but tell us a little bit about like how you think about that cheat from from your perspective. Yeah. So um, when I was thinking a little bit about what my cheat is, when you think about a cheat, I actually prefer the term like force multiplier, right? Like Cheat definitely has some challenging connotations, (laughs) but what you're after is like, what are the force multipliers in business? Like what really gets us to the end game? And for the last, I don't know how long it's been, maybe 20 years, I've gotten into running. I've, if I get to brag for a second, I've completed (laughs) over 25 marathons. Um, I've qualified for the Boston Marathon um, three times and have, have entered and completed the Boston Marathon three times. And in all of those hours of running, and let me tell you, it is hours and hours and miles and miles, you start to think about like, well, what if I were to stop? Like, what would happen? And and you don't let yourself go there. You just start to go and you just keep going until you hit that finish line. And along the way, trust me, there's a lot of like mind games, but what actually gets you to the finish line each and every time, barring those, and I feel bad for those that have big injuries along the way, but Barring a big injury, what gets you there is momentum. And when you think about the physics of momentum, it's about putting something in motion and keeping it in motion. And when I think about how that applies to business, it's that it's that constant forward um, accomplishment. And I know we'll talk a little bit about like what happens when it stops, but I'll just pause there for a moment and say, I believe the cheat code or the force multiplier in business is around momentum. Yeah, I mean, such a great topic because, you know, and without naming names, right, like Josh and I are always kind of comparing different organizations that we work with and and invest in. And, you know, there's something 
intangible there that just feels really different when that organization's clicking and you know it often is a tone set by the founder i'm curious like what 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 experiences have you seen that kind of led you to that that realization and like what does that feel like for you when something has momentum just kind of in a tangible way so when you think about the the world that we live in and especially in this growth stage world that a lot of the companies that we work with are in this b2b saas scale up there are 1,000 reasons why we should stop, right? And I correlate that back to running. Like, I'm thirsty. I got to go to the bathroom. Like, my leg hurts. Like, whatever. There's a million reasons why to stop. And sometimes you might need to slow down to do those things or, or stop for just a second. But I see that in organizations where there's a 1,000 reasons to stop. We got a new CRO. We are about to change out our CRO. We got a new, some other executive. Um, we're merging, we're, you know, we're, we're pulling out, like, there's so many different kind of, I hate to use the word excuses for why to stop. And unfortunately, when you when you think about how much those organizations need to accomplish that stop and start um, does not do them well. Um, and, and so that kind of spirit of continuing to move forward towards the goals. And, you know, again, sometimes you have to adjust the pace. But but I think that organizations that are focused on their goals and not stopping and starting are the ones that are successful. And, and I'm sure you both have seen what happens when we do stop for too long. Well, it, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because I feel like it's also become like a really cool thing to like say, I'm not going to, I'm just, you know, I, I hate this answer when you're interviewing a candidate. It's like, what would you do like first 30 days? Like, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to come in and listen. And like, obviously, like understanding what you're walking into is a good thing, right? But like, you want to be able to provide value at the same time. And I feel like that's one of those critical areas where you can start almost, you know, pinpointing what type of person someone is like, sure, you want to be informed, but at the same time, like, how are you going to, you know, certainly in a startup, like, how are you going to provide value day one? Really hard to do when you're just saying like, I'm going to be on the sidelines for the first 30, 60 days and getting to know people and then I'm going to come up with this magic answer. I, you know, maybe those those rules apply in a big political corporation, but I think the the audience that we're connecting with here don't have that luxury, and mm -hmm. I don't know that that serves you well to sit on the sidelines and watch the race. I think you got to get in and do hard things from the beginning. Well, yeah, totally you're talking agree. about growth. I mean, we're all working with growth stage companies, right? And a lot of big part of that is sales. I know the three of us here all have a sales background, right? So you know how it is when things are feeling stale and like you feel like pipeline is slowing down or it's shrinking or whatever. What do you do? You just do something. It, it doesn't even matter. It's it's like, oh, there's someone on my LinkedIn I haven't talked to in a year. I'm going to call them. Yeah. And it starts to snowball from there. Like literally doing something is that first thing. So what are some of the things that you've seen that are like those fire starters, right? That get people going when you feel like you're stuck. I mean, that's a really good and very specific question. I'd have to think about that a little bit more, Josh, to give you like a perfect answer. But <laughs> things like things like you said, like, okay, I'm going to connect with 10 more people this week that I haven't spoken to in a while. Um, one of the, the hacks, if you will, that I used to, um, you know, believe in is, you know, again, get on LinkedIn, get on a plane, get on the phone. And it was, it was like, what are 10 new starts that I can, that I can accomplish this week? And I guarantee you, they always led to something. Um, you know, when you think about momentum, one of the most overlooked opportunities back to, you know, the cheat code, I think one is 
conversations with our customers. Like how often are we doing that with our customers? Just getting on the phone. Again, I, I can cite dozens of examples of just picking up the phone. Hey, how are things? Like how is the project that we did with you two years ago? How are we performing? Or two weeks ago or two months ago, how is it performing? Um, they always lead to new opportunities. And then the second is around partners. You know, I think that, uh, Justin, we have a lot of experiences, especially, you know, in our days working in pretty, you know, sophisticated tech ecosystems, picking up the phone, you know, mm -hmm. asking how we can be helpful. That's what really propelled business forward. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, so difficult. I mean, it's getting a little bit easier or less uh, less frowned upon, but like just getting in front of someone like physically, right? Like that was just such a a huge, you know, use your word force multiplier in, you know, companies and, and roles in my past. Like I can think of one example, like I was in a payment tech company and like our entire go-to-market and value add was based on integration, right? And so it's everything that we marketed, it's everything that we sold, it's certainly, you know, how we talked about ourselves to, to our clients and, and thought about their ROI. And we went out, it, it was fairly new to the company, and I went out and, and spoke to this one customer and they weren't using the integration whatsoever. Like literally, like we could have been, you know, a standalone solution. And so it was just so eye-opening in terms of, all right, what are we doing from a customer enablement perspective? Like what's our onboarding process look like? Like you're right, like so many different doors just start to open up when you have those certainly customer conversations, but I think just conversations in general. And I, I, I still think face-to-face -face is, is such a game changer. I mean, I think the other, you know, just to tack one more piece onto it, you know, that's something that the whole executive suite should be doing too. You know, picking up the phone, talking to customers is not just for the CS or the sales leadership. I mean, that's for everybody in the organization. And um, it's always amazing. I mean, as we've said, every time you, you have those customer conversations, not only do new opportunities get unlocked, but you often learn something that allows you again to kind of keep, keep the momentum going forward. Um, and, and making sure that, again, you're pacing toward that end goal. Justin alluded to it a little bit earlier, but how do you think you foster that mentality? Because I know you said, like, yeah, the exec suite should be doing it as well and completely agree with you, but just empowering people to just do and create momentum sometimes, how do you foster that internally? Have you seen anything work really well? I mean, I think there's a handful of both, you know, uh, KPI setting and just good old fashioned enthusiasm. I have this quote, I, I used it for my college application, I don't know, maybe 30 or so years ago, um, but it was Ralph Waldo Emerson and I'm probably not getting it quite right, but it's that nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. And I really use that as my guiding light. You know, you can, you can train, right? Like as, as a runner, um, as somebody in the business world, you can train. And, and having a plan where you know how many miles a day and whether you need speed work. And, you know, there's always a training plan to get you to that end goal. And I think that's kind of half the answer, Josh, to your question. Like, I think you need a training plan that everyone's bought into and that you know works. But you also just need some good old fashioned rah-rah. Like you need people to be optimistic. You need them you know, I think I had shared previously, there was a race I did last October, it was the Portland Marathon. And at mile seven, like, I don't know what happened, but my body went off the rails. And, and it was, you know, green face, the whole thing, like it was not going to be a pretty ending. 
And I just had support from friends along the course. I had my own inner um, kind of voice speaking, like you can do hard things, you can get this done, like you need a mantra. And I think that that goes a long way. Um, you know, I guess that's where, you know, culture comes in. That's where having positive leadership comes in. So long answer to your question, but I think it's a combination of a good training plan and a positive attitude. Yeah, well, this mean, running talk is, to me is awesome. Yeah, sorry. This running right. talk is exhausting me here. I've done <laughs> one half marathon and I never want to do it again. But I live in a better climate <laughs> than you for that, Justin. That's true. That's yeah. true. Well, we have a friend, uh, Justin, that I do that says, if you see me running, you better run because I don't run. Something <laughs> that's about to happen. So I guess we should probably also deal with it right up front because, you know, again, like anything can be spun in the wrong direction. And, and you know, there's certainly a, a downside to embracing a mentality that's harmful here as well. So like, what's the difference between creating momentum and, and leading by example and versus, you know, working 12 hours a day, burning yourself out, like just, you know, pushing everyone to the absolute max all the time, right? Obviously there's a happy medium there, but how, how do you create that balance? I mean, I think when you when you think about the grind and I think of the antithesis of, of momentum or pacing, like the antithesis of the opposite is the grind. And I think you can grind for like little bits of time, especially as I think you, um, you know, get more, more years under your belt. I don't think you can grind forever though. And I think that's one lesson that we've learned um, over the last many years is that if you grind forever, you burn people out and, and you lose people along the way, right? They burn out. Um, I guess that's the good and bad of someone like me who's a marathon runner. Like I pace because I know what the finish line looks like. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I blow out my first, you know, half marathon, I am not going to make it there. Um, and that's, I guess, the, the beauty of having a good training plan is you have a good sense of what your body's capable of. And I think that applies to the business world too. Like we know what we're capable of and, and it's about pacing to get to the finish and knowing when to do some sprints and knowing when to pull back a little. When you, when you say that's a lesson that, that we've learned, are you talking about you know, lessons at winning by design or just throughout your career? Both, both. I mean, the, the interesting thing at winning by design is that we work with hundreds of companies. Um, and so we see a lot of like what works and what doesn't work at scale. You know, we see what makes teams perform really well. And I'll give you the, the magic ingredient, like no surprise, having an aligned process, like having a plan and, and KPI mm -hmm. that people follow, like that wins every day. The, yeah. The reason I was curious if that was a winning by design thing is so like, you know, I know the work that you guys do and, and, you know, it's a very, you know, different area, but very similar, like under their consultancy banner, it's so difficult to like, every time you win in terms of a client, like that's more work to do and a lot of work yeah. for a team, right? Like, and to balance all those projects, like is certainly something that, you know, we were always trying to keep a, an eye on at lead MD and, and, you know, try to keep in a, in a healthy balance. And it's just, I think, you know, consulting or agency work or any sort of services business is just one of the the most difficult environments, I think, to, to work in because of that aspect, right? Like that mm -hmm. tendency to like, hey, everything is billable and like we've got to be doing more work and that drives profit and, and, and revenue and so on. And so I love 
you know, kind of stories and lessons from those environments. Because I, I, do, I do think that, yeah, there's so many additional complexities in a, in a services-based business from a SaaS company. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, listen, in the SaaS world, and that's the view that I am looking into these days, um, those organizations where there's a superstar culture, they'll do well for a moment in time, but they won't do mm -hmm. well over the long run. And it's those companies that have really defined process that follow what the superstars are doing, but allow, you know, an average player to be rock stars. Those are the organizations that are winning in the long run. Yeah, I don't want to lose track of something you said a second ago, though. You said that you can pace yourself because you know the finish line. And as an organization scales and grows, every person you add gets further and further away from the founder and their view of the finish line. That's a really right? good point. Yeah. So that enthusiasm and that vision of what the finish line is needs to be repeated constantly over yeah. and over and over again. And as you know, I, uh, before Justin and I partnered, I worked for him as a member of the sales team for about a decade. And that's one thing I give him a lot of credit for was just repeating the same shit over and over and over again, as yeah. much as it was annoying at the time, <laughs> hey, now. you look back on it and you're yeah. like, okay, great. Cause I knew what I was going towards because of that. So and we see it now in our portfolio, right? Like the founder has to consistently vision set because they don't know your vision. It's not their company, right? So how are they going to be as enthusiastic as you? One, they're not. But two, you still got to drive that thing. So I do think that's a really important thing you said. You can pace yourself because you know the finish line. Yeah. And, you know, to take that one step further, and I, I hate to use all these running analogies, but I'm telling you, it's <laughs> like such a perfect analogy for life. So my best time that I ever got, three hours and 38 minutes. Um, it was my PR and a BQ um, in Sacramento, wow. but I followed a pacer. So I knew what my plan was, but I had the reinforcements of a pacer, right? And you bring that into the business world. And yes, you need your CEO and your C-suite to be um, you know, constantly re- um, I guess kind of repeating and 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 you know redirecting the vision as necessary. But you need your frontline managers, right? You need reinforcements throughout the race to make sure that the team's, you know, moving forward um, in a collective purpose-driven fashion. And, and that's what creates success. We see that too in all the B2B SaaS companies that we work with. Again, a, a differentiator between those that are are succeeding and those aren't is the strength, the coach, you know, the coaching culture um, that those frontline managers bring into play. Yeah, I mean, that that's probably one of what I'm going to ask next in terms of like momentum killers or what kills momentum in organizations, because I agree. I think that, you know, middle management gets such a bad rap. I think it's probably right. one of the most important aspects to any organization, because there's no way that you as an executive team or even, you know, VPs, SVP level can see into the granularity of what's happening in each team. You'd need someone to kind of translate that direction and that message into something that's highly tangible and means something to that team. And I just view that that middle management layer as, as such a connector in, in that equation. But what what else what do you see consistently, you know, on that inverse as momentum killers? Yeah. I mean listen, they're the things that we can't control, like the market and the ups and downs in the market. Um, there's things that, you know, that, that I just want to say are kind of like outside of everyone's control, but, but it's important to focus on the things that we can control, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard like, well, we need to put this on hold because dot, dot, mm -hmm. dot, 
I mean, that is like, if there's one like death of momentum, it's the, we got to put this on hold because dot, dot, dot. And as I shared earlier, you know, more often than not, it's the coming and going of somebody in the C-suite. Like, let's just wait. Well, we all know you bring a new person on board and like, they don't just jump into action on day one. They need time to, you know, to, to ramp. And so I don't know that I have dozens of deal killers, but, or momentum killers, but I think that's, that's the like, well, let's, let's put this on hold. And whatever I'd love, is. I'd love to see some survey data on how many times those that's and those this's actually get picked back up again. Because if there's one thing, and I love this about startups, but like there's no like central repository across the organization that says like, hey, here's all of our prioritized projects. Everything that progressed to 40% got put on hold, right? Like unless there's someone yeah. driving that forward, it just kind of tends to evaporate. Um, yeah. So I'd love to see some stats around that. It has to be abysmal, I would imagine. Yeah, I'm sure there are actually. I mean, our organization uses OKRs to, mm -hmm. you know, really define like what, you know, what the pacing is going to look like and when it's going to be done by. And, um, and listen, there's plenty of OKRs. I'm sure you guys do this too, where at the end of the quarter or even mid quarter, you're like, you know what, we're done with Scratch that. Scratch it. Yep. Scratch it. And, and listen, I don't want to say that's a bad idea. Like not everything that you put on, on paper is an idea that should move forward, but some of the big rocks that are around the business vision or around sales goals. I mean, those are the big ones that you need to continue to march toward. Well, that's probably even, you know, earlier, I think Josh asked, you know, like, how, how do you see people like fostering momentum in a really tactical manner? I think like great leaders, managers, you know, bosses have to figure out a way to make that effort count for something still, right? Like, so even if you can just take a piece of that initiative or that project and, and demonstrate how it's going to you know, be repurposed in something else or how it benefited a goal or how it's going to inform this new project. Like, I feel like those are ways that are, you know, just kind of unspoken tactics that you can use to ensure that everyone knows like things are still moving forward. And I didn't just waste a, a ton of time, which is obviously precious. Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the, the, the things with Mo, going back to your running analogy, because I kind of do the same thing in terms of training. I don't run, but I do train. And you find that you two can't two different bikes. <laughs> There's a couple of bikes behind me. I got all kinds of stuff in here. All it's just window see. dressing. Okay. Yeah. But you know, you always find, like you said, you talk about pacing yourself. And I think it's important because you can't always grind all the time. I can't always be sprints. There's going to be peaks and valleys in your energy for sure. But again, if you have something that you're driving towards, it's a lot easier to keep some momentum going. Like I can't, you know. I can't lift hard five days a week anymore. It's just not possible. My body can't sustain it. Right. So I make sure I get two, right? Some days I might, some weeks I might get five, but I've got to keep the momentum by having a minimum of two. And I think you can apply that like your running analogy into in the business world. It's like at minimum, even if the energy systems are completely taxed, these things have to be done, right? That just keep the ball moving forward. And I think that's an important thing as a founder, as you're growing a team is to make sure, you know, and I think use the OKR framework as a way to, to, to maybe look at that. Like these are the pillars. If they're not being at least worked at uh, MVP level all the time, we're, we're not, we're going to fail. Right. So, and being able to understand when it's time to ramp up and scale that energy system up for a sprint and then be able to throttle it back down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one other thing that I, I would want to share and, and, 
I think it's important. You asked the question a few minutes ago, Justin, about the, you know, the grind and, and what the difference is between kind of like laying it all out there and grinding along versus momentum. And, and while I do think momentum is about getting to the end goal, you know, there are times like that race I talked about in October where I just felt awful, um, where I had to really make myself as comfortable as I could be when I was incredibly uncomfortable. And I don't know that that's something that, you know, that all kind of business professionals, you know, prescribe to, but I think it's something mm -hmm. that's important. Um, and whether you're an individual contributor or a new manager or somebody in the executive suite, I do think that there's moments for us professionally where we, we are uncomfortable. We have to make a call that makes us uncomfortable, or we have to, um, you know, make a decision that is uncomfortable, but there, there is this sense of like needing to, to be comfortable when perhaps things are a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. There's a great book called getting naked that I used to make required reading, which is just all about that, that subject. And, and frankly, couldn't, couldn't agree more when you're so in terms of like resources of an organization, right? Like you can't do everything, yeah. you know, w within your four walls. And so I, again, I don't want to monopolize this talking about partnerships because somehow we always end up bringing that topic up in, in these things. But like, what what is the, how can organizations leverage, you know, yeah. resources, partners, you know, folks outside those four walls to, to maintain that momentum to your point so that, you know, people aren't getting burnt out and that not everything's falling on, on, you know, our shoulders. Yeah. I mean, I do think, again, as I mentioned earlier on, I think that partnerships, you know, many hands make light work. And whether that's inside the, the building, if you will, and I know this, the notion of a building is kind of antiquated, but whether that's inside <laughs> your organization or whether that's tapping into those, um, you know, in the days of, of many, many um, organizations selling services, I always knew that there were tech teams out there that had uh, sales forces that were, you know, a hundred times bigger than mine. And if I could just enable them and tap into that, that bandwidth that we would benefit from it. And in fact, that that was absolutely the case. Um, I don't know what partnerships look like for all of the organizations in your portfolio, but many, I'm certain, can benefit from having a partner ecosystem, many. Um, so it's about figuring out like where that alignment is, typically around having a shared vision of your ICP mm -hmm. and, and making sure that there's alignment in terms of culture and how you service that ICP. And then ultimately making sure that you can enable them in a way that they can, you know, be a representative of what you have to offer or, or, or be close enough to it that they bring you to the table. Yeah. I mean, putting yeah. that sense of momentum into the partner organization, I think is almost probably the singular definition of success or failure there, right? Like so many partnerships are, are written on a piece of paper and there may even be a, a great plan laid out and then it just gets siloed down into you know, this very kind of mundane motion. And you met, you mentioned like portfolio companies, like the, the, the orgs that we're working with that are, are creating excitement, now, obviously not just at the superficial level, but on joint customer wins yeah. on the value that they're providing, like it, and then they're, they're staying, you know, top of mind. They're, 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 you know, again, creating just that, that awareness within um, that partner org is, is they stay head and shoulders uh, amongst the rest and certainly their competition. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I think that's how you and I got to know each other over the years is that 
we were building momentum and energy around a, a shared partner who was really fantastic to work with. And, um, and, and that definitely allowed us both to grow our businesses as a result. Yeah, even if you did a side-by-side -side right now of a couple of companies within our portfolio, the one that is heavily embracing that one-to-many channel relationship or partner relationship, as you described it, is seeing probably 10x the pipeline right now than the other who hasn't figured it out, right? And really putting that energy towards that partner ecosystem and enabling them, embracing them, showing that, that enthusiasm as you laid it out. And it's, it's a huge differentiator especially now when outbound messaging is getting so much harder. Right. And back to some of the points that we were discussing earlier, Josh, I'm guessing it's, you know, not I'm guessing, I know it's the same tenants. It's, you know, constantly picking up the phone and checking in on them, making sure that they've got enablement, you know, discussing what the wins are and, and making sure to, you know, to get in front of those um, shared customers, you know, customers together. It's, it, you know, if you're, if you're flying not out to their line, events, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like just doing the little things that, you know, maybe not everyone else will do. Yeah, that's 100%. Yeah, I think it's really big. And the, the you know, when we talk about our cheat code, right, that's what it is, right? Like partner-led is a really big part of our cheat code and selling to and through partners. And it just creates momentum so much faster than trying to do it, pick, pick off an account one by one. It's just such a hard way to go and a hard way to grow, especially in the current economic environment. So like you said, I, I love the idea of getting as close to your ICP as possible finding out who shares it and where do you fill gaps? And it's, it's such a big cheat for companies that frankly accelerate your valuation faster than you could do on a, on a direct sales model. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to make a thin connection here, but I wanted to make sure that we talked about this. So <laughs> you, you had shared a, um, uh, a study that you guys put out uh, under, I believe it's under women in revenue. I think you guys might've partnered on it. I can't remember explicitly, but, and we kind of had a little bit of an exchange on, on LinkedIn about it. And you mentioned that, you know, because I immediately went to like, and so for those that haven't seen it and you couldn't know what it is because I haven't said what it is yet, but the study is about essentially like uh, parity within salaries and, and compensation between men and women, right? Um, and my immediate response to that was like, oh, I can't believe there's organizations that, you know, aren't driving better homogeny in, in this area and so on. And I, I, your response to something to the effect of like, you know, it's not as straightforward or it's not just kind of the legacy mentality that stands in the way here. I think there's, there's a certain aspect of momentum that comes into that in terms of like, you know, it, and Josh, actually, we just talked about this with a, a founder the other day, but like there tends to be like personality differences, right? Yeah. Like just in terms of negotiation and how hard people drive towards things. We got accused of being all men and driving really hard towards something that we were arguing for. Um, and, and so I, how do you, how do you up-level that momentum within that group? I'm curious to, you know, yeah. understand the work that you guys are doing there. I love that question. So let me just um, give a little bit of context for a second for those that may not be familiar with Women in Revenue. So um, Women in Revenue is a 501c3 nonprofit um, that was founded five years ago by 10 women um, who came from the B2B tech, sales, marketing, and CS worlds. And what we realized, and it, it circles back to your question, that we didn't necessarily have mentors in our worlds that allowed us to like know what great looked like. And you know, I will say that you know, as a runner, I have always sought out better runners than myself to learn from coaches, um, you know, just people who had been doing it longer than me. I didn't become a runner until I was in my twenties. 
And, and by seeking out people that are better than you, you learn and you, you up-level, right? I remember wanting to break a four-hour marathon. That was a really big goal for me. And I needed to get coaching in order to get there. But once I got a coach, I was physically capable of it. And I think going back to the salary study that was done by Women in Revenue, um, the, the um, huge variance between what women are earning and what men are earning, some of it may be organizations that are just unfair. But I think a lot of it is that women have not necessarily had mentors to say, like, what should I be asking? How do I negotiate? Mm -hmm. Um, how do I push a little bit harder on this? And so um, I don't know whether you call it momentum or mentorship, but I think there is, as you said, kind of a thin line that connects them very closely. So uh, yeah, I think I think getting a, a, a mentor and, and using that to help propel you forward is absolutely um, in lockstep with what we mean by momentum. And, and I'm just curious, do you guys do that with like one-to-one -one pairings or is it like a combination of like one-to-many and one-to-one? -one? Like what, what's the most effective way to kind of impart that mentorship? Yeah, great question. So all of the above. So, um, you know, if you go to womeninrevenue.org, um, it's free to be a member and you can get one-to-one um, -one mentoring. You, um, we have what are called flash mentorship. So let's say you just want to a mentor for a moment because you're negotiating your next pay raise or you're negotiating a new job. You can have flash mentorship. And we also have huddles, which is maybe a one to 15 or 20 ratio on a topic. Um, maybe it's about building your personal brand. Um, maybe it's about how to build a, you know, your first uh, board deck. Critical. Yeah. I mean, you think about that, like most, most founders, not only women, but like such a a resource that's difficult to find from kind of the horse's mouth aspect. There's so much information online, but you know, to the point earlier, so much less effective than, than getting someone there that actually has been to the finish line perhaps multiple times and is willing to kind of take that, that time and impart that to someone else. So great, great organization, great mission, love it all around. Where so, are you seeing the women in your in your in the group seeing the biggest strides forward? Like what are some of the big macro level stuff that's just like breaking through? I mean, I don't know that it's, uh, I'll be honest, we're an organization that really wants to be grassroots. And so I think it's the sum of many parts, Josh. You know, we made a very deliberate decision that we weren't going to, you know, uh, be lobbyists or, you know, fighting the big fight from, you know, from the ivory tower. But it was really about helping one woman at a time, get her next pay raise, get her next job, get her next speaking placement on a panel. And so we have 7,500 members. Um, I will go out on a limb and saying that all of those 7,500 women probably have many moments where their mentor or a network um, or a you know, piece of information that they exchanged over Slack helped them in their career. So I think we are the sum of many, many parts. Incredible. So that, that's a great transition. So Lauren, number one, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Always love talking to you. Great, great information around a topic that I absolutely love. If people want to find out more about yourself, women in revenue, anything that you're up to, where can they go? I think the best place is LinkedIn. Uh, Lauren Schleifer Goldstein on LinkedIn. Um, or they can they're, go they're going to get a, a spelling exam at the same time. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> or you can find me at winningbydesign.com or womeninrevenue.org. Awesome. Love it. Well, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. 
Thanks everyone else for, for joining in. Absolutely give us a like and a follow, share the stuff out there, do all of that stuff that people ask for. But most of all, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thank you guys for having me.